Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Coding Fix. If you're here after having listened to our first episode, welcome back. And if you're brand new, it's nice to have you here. My name is Alex, and I'm a senior software developer who loves talking about coding, education, and maybe even sharing some helpful ideas here and there. This podcast is the latest in the Fix series of podcasts. If you are a fan of gaming or anime or comics or any of that kind of stuff, I definitely recommend checking out our weekly Gaming Fix show. I'm also one of the hosts of that. But this one is all about coding, and these first few episodes are mainly aimed at new coders, people looking to get into coding for the first time, or maybe even those looking to get back into it. Last episode, we took a bit of a dive, even if it wasn't too deep of one, but still a dive into a few subjects to help relatively new developers get started. We talked about what coding is from a fairly high level, as well as a few of the ways that you can get started. That included talking about the advantages and disadvantages of teaching yourself to code, going through a coding bootcamp, or getting a university degree. Now, with episode two upon us, we are going to approach things from a slightly lower level, we're slowly going to be zooming in on some of the details of actually getting started with coding. Today, we'll be talking about some of the languages that are worth considering when you're looking to start your coding journey, as well as some of the base concepts that you'll need to get a grasp on. And in our next episode, we will be getting into what it's like to actually work day-to-day as a dev. But that's next episode, and we have a lot of information to get through in this one, so let's not dawdle. Let's get right to it. The choice of which language someone should start with is something that's often up for debate among professional coders. For one, when we make a recommendation, we usually tend to fall back to the ones we're most comfortable with. People will often defend the language they love most and maybe even try to discourage people from using languages they deem to be lesser. I'd like to avoid that. Instead, I'd like to take a relatively objective look at a handful of languages and talk about the things which make each of them awesome, but also be fair and talk about some of their downsides. This will be very similar to our discussions about ways to learn from episode one. Each of them has merit, each of them is valid, and each has trade-offs. So to be completely clear, there is no one perfect language, and that's okay. Also, One last thing before we jump into the recommendations. Remember how I mentioned that first I would be talking about languages, and then second I would talk about the base concept you'll need to understand as a coder? Well, that order wasn't exactly accurate. I'll be interweaving some of these concepts along with discussing each language. The reason for that being is that these concepts are common to all languages, And I think it's important to have that context when I start talking about each language's particular advantages and disadvantages. To phrase it another way, I'd like to draw a real-world comparison. In normal, everyday life, people around the world speak all kinds of different languages, and we all have commonalities between all these different spoken languages. It doesn't matter if you're speaking English, French, Japanese, Hebrew, whatever— There are concepts which are common to all of them, mainly because the languages are used to describe real-world things that we as humans understand. For example, let's take the word you in English. I am speaking with you. We understand that the word you means the subject 
that we're communicating with. You are the one I'm speaking with. In French, we also have the same concept. And the word we use there is tu. Je te parle. Same thing. In Japanese, it would be anata. Anata ni hanashimas. So anata, tu, you, all of these mean exactly the same thing. I'm speaking to you. Just because they're different languages and we use different words and vocabulary to describe things, it doesn't change the underlying concept of what we're trying to describe. Ultimately, the things we're talking about are fairly universal. The same is true for programming. When learning a coding language, not only will you be learning its equivalent to vocabulary and grammar, you will also be learning the equivalents of these kinds of universal concepts. And much like we talked about in episode one, computer brains do work differently than ours do. But that's kind of only in practice. While we understand concepts like you and I, or cat, or fox, or pancakes, we, we get them because they all make sense to us. We can picture what those words mean, we can interpret them, and have context for them. And as for computers, they work in numbers, and characters, and strings, and arrays, and memory addresses, and data structures, and algorithms, and much more. We'll get to all of those concepts in time, but all of that is to say that I will be interjecting some of these concepts along the way with the languages themselves. So that way we can point out particular strengths and weaknesses of each language while having context for what, you know, what that actually means. To bring things back to our spoken human language, as well as how our brains work, there is a specific behavior which is true to both real life as well as with code. The language we start with will usually be the one we end up being most comfortable with. We will tend to become fluent in that first one, and then as we continue learning new languages, we might have the tendency to kind of translate what we're learning back into our first language to help ourselves understand it. Again, that's true with the languages we speak and also with coding languages, which is why it can be important to really think about which one to start with. We want to make sure that our foundation is solid. So if or when we do end up learning a second or third or, you know, more coding languages, that we will have picked a strong starting point to refer back to. So with that in mind, let's get back to actually talking about coding languages. Picking a language these days is actually pretty cool because if I was recording this podcast 15, maybe even 10 years ago, there used to be a really significant divide between recommending languages for the web versus recommending languages for writing applications. Web being websites, the things you'd navigate to with your browser on your phone or computer, and applications being things you launch from your computer or the apps that you start up on your phones or tablets. The thing is, this dividing line between web and applications has gotten really fuzzy over the years. Languages which were once constrained to the web and seemed to only be for the web are now used to build very successful desktop applications. Discord, a popular chat app for gamers, is built using JavaScript, which for many years was a language thought to only be used for the web. And conversely, one of the oldest and frankly, hardest to learn languages is assembly. It first showed up in the 40s 
and has been a core part of computers for decades, but we never really associated it with the web. That is, until the advent of WebAssembly back in 2017. So, in my opinion, you don't really need to worry about siloing yourself too much into either the web or application worlds based on the language you pick to start with, because that line is just so, so fuzzy and blurred now. But, of course, there are still some languages which favor certain environments, and that's totally fine. I'll make sure to point those out if or when they come up. Also, I'm not going to break these recommendations down into any kind of clickbaity style thing, like top five languages you need to know to get into programming, or anything like that. They all have pros, they all have cons, they're all valid, and the language you choose is ultimately the one which will best guide you to your personal goals. The answer definitely isn't going to be the same for everyone, and there's more nuance to it than doing any kind of arbitrary ranking. I will, however, break the languages into two categories which are more subjective from my behalf. There are some languages that I think would make better first or primary languages, uh, them being the ones which would serve as a strong foundation for when you go on to learn other languages, and the other category being languages that I think would better serve you as the kind that you can add to your toolbox after having learned a primary one. Now, with all of that out of the way, and with all of this talk of web versus application development in mind, and since I've already mentioned it, let's talk about our first language, JavaScript. JavaScript is a language which is often recommended to new developers, and frankly, it's for good reason. Its syntax, uh, syntax being the term we use for written language and code, uh, the syntax is fairly easy to read. It's a very diverse language, it can be reasonably powerful, and it is used at a ton of potential workplaces. It's easily the most popular language in the industry right now, and if you learn it, there's a pretty high likelihood that you would be able to find a working position as a developer quicker than with other languages. Now, when I say it's diverse, by that I mean it works both in the front end and the back end. If you're not familiar with what those terms mean, the TLDR short version is that the front end is what displays on your screen. If you navigate to a website, it's exactly what you're seeing. Images and text and videos, animations, menus, forms, all that exciting stuff. The way the website looks and the way you as a user can interact with it is the front end. Of course, for a website there's also HTML and CSS in there too, but for the purpose of this chat, let's restrict it to JavaScript. If you learn JavaScript, HTML and CSS will come along for the ride. So to rephrase what the front end is like in real-world terms, it's kind of like going to a restaurant. In a restaurant, you'll be sitting at a table, enjoying the sights and sounds and smells around you, and ultimately you'll be looking at a menu and ordering something from it. This is all kind of the equivalent of a front end of a restaurant. The back end, in coding at least, is the part that handles all of the logic and data manipulation. So, to continue our real-world example, once you have given your order to your waiter or waitress, they take that order back to the kitchen. The kitchen then looks at the order, gathers all the ingredients, and by using their skills and knowledge, they make a delicious meal. 
Once the kitchen has finished its job, it sends the food back out to the person who ordered it, and that, the kitchen, is the back end. It's pretty much the exact same concept in Codeland, but instead of sending you back foods, it sends data. So for an example, there are some websites where you can do things like convert my image from JPEG to ping, or convert this audio from MP3 to WAV, or whatever. Uh, the way they work is that you go to the website, which is like walking into the restaurant, you pick the conversion you want to do, which is picking your meal from the menu, you put your file, the MP3 or JPEG or whatever, into the front end, and you push a button to submit it, which is placing your order. After you do that, our digital waiters and waitresses take your order and hand that file off to be handled by the back end, which uses all of its skills and knowledge to make a delicious data meal. Once it's finished, our digital kitchen signals that it is done, and then your tasty data makes its way back to the browser. And that's basically the separation between front end and back end. Front end is the table you sit at at a restaurant, and back end is the kitchen. Front end is the website you're looking at, Backend is what's handling all of the data. These days, JavaScript is adept at handling both of these things. Its first purpose in existing was 100% browser-based, meaning that it wasn't just considered ideal for the web, it was actually confined to the web. It was initially designed to purely be a front-end language, but with the advent and popularity of a framework called Node, we now have the ability to write complete back-end code in JavaScript. And that's kind of awesome. It means you can have a full web application with both front and back-end written in the same language, which is just a huge advantage. Now, when it comes to recommendations, though it's often recommended to new people by articles and websites, recommending JavaScript as a first language is pretty divisive amongst professionals. While there are a lot of people who will recommend it as a first language, there's almost an equal number who will recommend against it as your first language. The reason for this is, well, put simply, JavaScript is weird. If you know one of the other major languages, JavaScript doesn't really behave the way you would expect it to. Now, that's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's good to shake things up and look at things differently, but the issue with JavaScript as a first language is that it might teach you some really bad habits. To give an example, we're going to need to have a super tiny lesson here about primitive data types in coding. Primitive data types are our most basic way of representing information in any programming language. These include several different kinds of numbers, which are things like integers, floating point numbers, fixed point numbers, etc. Booleans, which is how we represent true or false. Strings and characters, which is how we write down and express human language, things like letters and symbols. And lastly, ranges, which is how we store the range of data we want to save. For now, we're not going to do a full lesson on all of these, but let's pick two of them out for a second. Let's grab an integer number and a character. An integer number just means a whole number, so not 1.1 or 3.14, just plain old 1, 2, 3. And characters are ways for us to break down their bigger brother data type, which is strings. If I write down the word hi, it is made up of two characters, h and i. The string is hi, 
the characters are H and I. We can represent any letter, symbol, emoji, or whatever with characters. The thing is, we also have character representations of numbers. So we can have an integer number 5, but we can also have a character 5. Most languages are really explicit about separating all these data types, but the thing about JavaScript is, it doesn't. And this can be an issue because maybe you're trying to work with the number 5, but you've inadvertently or accidentally given it the string or character of 5, and everything is breaking. But when you look at the code, it all looks right, but there's just some weird parts of the language which are working against you. JavaScript itself is trying to figure out the type of whatever you've just given it, and it's making its own decision as to what type of data it is. Is it a string, or is it a character, or is it a number? All this is because JavaScript is what we call a dynamically typed language, or duck-typed language. Duck-typed meaning if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. JavaScript sees five, and it is making the decision as to whether or not it's a number. So JavaScript has a lot of weird interactions like this, and its weirdness with dynamic types is just one of them. It would take a long time to go over all of JavaScript's weirdness, but suffice to say, it's these bits of inconsistent behavior which is the basis for some people being really hesitant to recommend JavaScript as a first language. Now, with all that being said, and again, if I was recommending this podcast even just a few years ago, I also would have recommended against it as a first language. However, there is a way I can and will recommend it as your primary language, and that is if you use something called TypeScript. TypeScript is a superset, or an extension of JavaScript, which Microsoft started a handful of years ago. It aims to solve a lot of the issues and weirdness inherent to JavaScript, and honestly, it's pretty great in my opinion. While JavaScript itself has pretty good syntax, which is similar to other language, the lack of proper typing makes it unpredictable. TypeScript adds these missing types and makes it much safer to work with. Uh, safer meaning you know exactly what kind of data you're working with at all times. And honestly, if you learn TypeScript, you're going to have a pretty easy time picking up some of the other languages that we'll be talking about just a little later. So stay tuned. If you aim to use TypeScript and intend to do any kind of work involving the web, then I have no problem recommending it as your first language. You can start by learning JavaScript and then work your way towards TypeScript once you feel more comfortable. Because again, TypeScript is an extension of JavaScript. For the most part, it still reads and writes just like JavaScript. It still uses JavaScript under the hood, and that means you'll need to understand that stuff first, but it just improves on everything, like by a lot. So that gives us our first recommendation for a primary language. JavaScript, kind of. TypeScript, yes. If you learn TypeScript, you will definitely have a great foundation for continuing to grow as a developer. And living in the JavaScript ecosystem will also give you access to a lot of really great and popular tools like Node, React, Angular, Vue, and far more. The community is also always just building new tools that you can pull into your projects 
and make them better by way of something called NPM, which we'll talk about again in just a little bit. I would recommend JavaScript pretty wholeheartedly for those who are looking to do any kind of web development on the front end. If that's your goal, then JavaScript is pretty much a necessity. It's also good for building backend code for web applications, lightweight desktop applications, and just writing general use code in your day-to-day -day life. It's also just incredibly popular right now. So if your focus is breaking into the industry quickly, then JavaScript does get a recommendation as a primary language with a little asterisk, which makes it actually read as TypeScript. Now, that was a lot of information. We talked quite a bit about JavaScript and had a few mini lessons of core concepts along the way. So if you feel like you need a break, then please feel free to pause the podcast for a few minutes and come back anytime. But if you're still feeling good, let's carry on. So JavaScript is one of the few languages which remains truly web-focused. So from here on out, we'll be talking about ones which can be used to build really amazing web apps, but are also really good at other things, like building command line applications or desktop applications, phone apps, etc. And while JavaScript can do these things, the languages we'll be talking about are generally a bit better at it. So picking the next language to talk about was tough because there's a lot of good ones to pick from, but Ultimately, I went with one which is really popular among developers these days, and that language is Python. Python and JavaScript actually have quite a bit in common. For one, they're both dynamically typed, which again, can be a plus or a minus depending on who you ask. And for another, they're both strongly associated with the web. While Python itself does not directly run in browsers like JavaScript does, meaning the browsers themselves don't typically run Python, it is very common to see people using Python to write back-end code, which dynamically generates front-end code. Funny enough, it can actually generate this front-end code into JavaScript so that it runs in the browser. And this is what we call server-side rendering. And modern Python actually lets you write entire React apps straight from your back-end code. And for clarity, React is one of the most popular JavaScript front-end frameworks. So that's pretty cool. Also, to be clear, most back-end frameworks do have the ability to produce server-side rendered front-ends, but a lot of the time they tend to be more constrained and closely tied to the language they're originally written in. But Python is just super cool in how flexible it is. There's also just a lot of stuff Python is cool with too. <laughs> Like, remember I was talking about how JavaScript is really extensible and how its community makes a bunch of tools that you can pull into your projects? In the JavaScript world, that usually uses a tool called NPM, Node Package Manager. Python has an equivalent, which is called PIP. It's been around a bit longer, so it's more mature, and some of the packages available to you through PIP are just super incredible, especially if you are at all interested in the math world or things like machine learning and AI. Python has truly become the language of choice for a lot of developers working in those worlds, generally because it's just really good at all those things, math and AI and machine learning, and all the while, it's also pretty easy to write. Though, writing Python can be a mixed bag for some people. It doesn't really read like any other major language, so to a lot of developers, it actually reads like what we call pseudocode. 
Pseudocode is another way to essentially describe fake code. Like if we're going to use shorthand with each other and say, oh, it should do this and then it'll do that. And then at the end, it does this other thing. We use pseudocode much like how movie makers use storyboards. We use it to illustrate ideas and structures with other programmers without actually needing to write the full code itself yet. In most languages, that means that we're taking the pseudocode that we wrote on a whiteboard or whatever, and then we're translating it into the actual syntax our language wants. But Python is weird, because it pretty much reads just like how we might describe pseudocode. And to be honest, I don't imagine saying code syntax out loud is going to be particularly helpful or fun to listen to, so I won't, but hopefully just the description of pseudocode itself is enough to illustrate what I mean. If you do have questions about it, or you want me to write out some examples, please always feel free to reach out. Anyways, the only other significant downside to Python is that it isn't the fastest language in the world. Other languages, which we'll soon be talking about, definitely perform faster, meaning if you were to ask it to do a bunch of complex calculations, the other languages will tend to give you a result before Python does. And Python also tends to use up a lot of memory. And while we're talking about the way it works on a computer, both it and JavaScript are not what we call multi-threaded. I won't go too deep into what that means for now, but the short version is that both of these languages can be pretty inefficient, especially if you ever want to have it doing parallel tasks. By that, I mean rather than having your code doing one thing at a time, instead having it do five or ten things at a time. Neither of them are too great at that. But honestly, for most people, these inefficiencies won't really matter until you start doing it at a professional level, or just at a much bigger scale than what you'll be learning with. Ultimately, Python is a really interesting language, and according to a major developer survey from 2020, it is currently the number two most popular language in the industry, behind JavaScript. So... If you're thinking in terms of near-future job prospects, Python is also a really solid bet. And frankly, it's going to be around for a long time. Python backend frameworks like Django and Flask are just immensely popular, and it continues to be a dominant force in a lot of industries. It's great for web, it's really great for math, and it's becoming the industry standard for machine learning and AI. My personal hang-ups about recommending it as a first language are kind of similar to what I have for JavaScript, in that it might promote some bad habits due to how loose it is with its own rules thanks to being dynamically typed, as well as the fact that its syntax isn't really like anything else out there. That could have the potential of making a second language a bit tougher to pick up, but honestly I'd leave that one up to you. Generally, once you understand the fundamental programming concepts to a strong degree, I wouldn't worry so much about the syntax itself so much as you understand how it all fits together. So, Python is our second recommendation for a primary language. Again, if you're interested in back-end web development, or things like math, machine learning, or AI, then I would point you towards Python. We are now at the point with recommendations where the popularity of a language, at least according to surveys, doesn't necessarily dictate which ones are the best to start with. So for now, I'd like to continue talking about recommendations for primary languages, which don't necessarily sit at the top of the most popular list, but 
Uh, I'll come back to some of those popular ones again for a few recommendations for secondary ones to add to your toolbox. So when I was talking about Python, I mentioned that its syntax doesn't necessarily line up with any of the other major languages. And that remains true. But I also mentioned that JavaScript has great syntax, especially once you add TypeScript, because that makes it much more like how you would read some of the other major languages. We're almost there. Soon those languages will be out of the shroud of mystery. <laughs> but first, a quick thought about something important you should be considering when thinking about which language to pick. The reason Python and JavaScript are considered relatively easy to learn and recommended to new developers is because they are what we call high-level languages. By high-level, we mean that you don't have to think so much about the stuff that lives at the lower levels. Remember, at the start of the episode, we were talking about things like primitives, strings and numbers, uh, data structures, memory addresses, and the like. High-level languages kind of abstract those concepts away from you so you don't have to think about them too much. Another way to put it is that with higher-level languages, they read more like our human language. And the closer we get to the actual language computers use, the lower level we get. In all honesty, high-level closer to human language is not always a good thing when you're learning, because the concepts at those lower levels are the ones you really, really should learn. They're extremely important, and if you can master them at an early stage, you're setting yourself up for far more successes down the road. It can take a bit more work because the learning curve is definitely steeper, and they do tend to be more difficult to master. But once you do, it is absolutely worth it. Bear in mind, in university courses, they almost always start you out with lower-level languages because it gives you just such a solid foundation. You are understanding the way the computer works in its language. Yes, the higher-level languages are definitely great to get started with if you're looking to break into the industry quickly, but the lower-level ones are really worth considering if you want to set the stage for becoming a well-rounded, diverse programmer from the get-go. So with that out of the way, let's reveal the mystery and talk about our next languages. And yes, I did say languages, plural. These aren't the lowest level of languages we'll be talking about, but I'd say they're a healthy middle level, if, if that were to exist. Uh, they have some of the comforts of high-level languages in that they're pretty easy to read, but you are also able to interact with them at a lower level, and that makes them wonderful foundations. So, since I'll be talking about two languages here, I'll mention them both together, but we will talk about each of them individually in a sec. But here we are, the big reveal. What are the languages? Well, they're Java and C Sharp. Now, the reason I group these two together is because they're very similar in terms of how you read and write them, to the point where you might actually consider reading and writing them to be nearly identical. And honestly, they also read a lot like TypeScript. So some fun lineage here. Microsoft were the ones who made TypeScript, and they were also the ones who made C Sharp. C Sharp was influenced by Java, which itself was influenced by another language, but we'll talk about that one in just a sec. Anyways, C Sharp and Java have a ton in common. And unlike our high-level languages, they are both what we call strongly typed. The high-level ones were dynamically typed, again, meaning the language itself was able to kind of guess or infer what kind of data you're using, 
whereas strongly typed languages mean you need to define what the type is. And once it's set, it is set. You are not changing it. A number is a number, a string is a string. While that might sound restrictive at first, it is actually extremely useful. It gives you what we call type safety. There's never any ambiguity with what your code is trying to do, and ultimately, it gives you far more control over every part of your code base. Also, it gives you access to these really awesome things which we call interfaces and abstract classes, and much more things which are all really wonderful, but I, I'm, I'm not going to talk about them in this overview episode because they would take way too long. Java and C-sharp are also what we consider object-oriented languages. And to be honest, that's another thing I really, really want to talk about, and especially why it's super important. But also, it would probably take us like two hours to properly do justice, so maybe that could be its own episode sometime. The short version is that object-oriented languages give us the ability to reuse our code in different places across the whole code base in a really elegant way. And we'll just leave it at that for now. They are also both what we call compiled languages. And this is really important because it is directly tied into the difference between strongly typed languages and dynamically typed ones. Dynamically typed languages like JavaScript and Python are not compiled languages. They are what we call interpreted languages. When we run an interpreted language like JavaScript, when we run the code itself, it is interpreted by either the browser or some other engine like Node. The engine takes the code base and dynamically works through it with whatever operation is needed, uh, which is one of the main reasons that dynamic types are so common in these languages. The interpreter is just kind of cool with being more dynamic and fluid because it is just running and interpreting everything on the fly. It's more malleable, it's generally easier to just kind of get up and running, and like we called attention to with Python, it's slower. Contrarily, compiled languages take your whole code base and render it down to very low-level code, which is super optimized and super fast in execution. No interpreter needed. We've already compiled our code down so we can package it up and use it right away. So, to boil all of that down, Java and c are both strongly typed, compiled, object-oriented language. They are lower level than Python and JavaScript, which makes them a bit harder to learn, but the trade-off is that they are both more powerful, and with them being a lower level, they will serve you better as a foundation for learning other languages. So, now we know a bit about both of our languages, and let's break them down just a little bit. Let's start with C-sharp. C-sharp is a language which has evolved a lot within the past few years. It used to be very focused on Windows developers, and Windows developers alone. Like, if you were on Mac or Linux, too bad, you did not get to use C-sharp. Microsoft made it, so Microsoft kept it to Windows. But the Microsoft of the past few years is no longer that same Microsoft. C-sharp in the modern day works on pretty much anything, and it's extremely portable. By portable, I mean you can work on your projects on whatever platform you like, Windows, Mac, Linux, whatever, and C-sharp is just so much better about that now. On top of that, once you know C-sharp, you open the door to what they call the .NET framework. .NET is an amazing web framework, which is just, frankly, it's vast. It's enormous. 
<laughs> while we talked about user created libraries available to use if you're using like npm for javascript or pip for python tons of those tools that people are creating and making in those spaces already exist within net itself and if somehow for some reason there's something you can't find in there and you want to add it then you have c sharp's own package manager nuget so um yes i mentioned that the net framework is vast and to try and describe everything it can do would be another few two-hour episodes. So I'll summarize it this way. If you were to only use C Sharp and pair it with the .NET framework, you could build an entire backend for a web application as well as an entire frontend, all of which is stable and powerful enough to handle enterprise-level data, and you could get it up and running really quickly. And also, hey, your project will work on various operating systems, so thumbs up. On top of that, it has just really excellent documentation, and it just has tons of resources written by Microsoft themselves, which are just replete with plenty of examples to help you learn even the most complex parts of the language. Also, C Sharp has just been around for decades. It is a proven and very stable language, and the .NET framework is... It's just one of the most complete solutions for web out there. And you know what? The good news, it doesn't stop there. If you want to step away from web and get into writing desktop applications, it's also absolutely excellent for that. It compiles down to what we call bytecode very efficiently. And yes, to my other so software engineers, if you're paying attention, I know it goes down to MSIL, but let's consider it bytecode for now. No matter the case, you can start writing full desktop applications just as quick as you're able to write really good web applications. On top of that, <laughs> if you're interested in game development, I very, very strongly recommend that you take a step towards C Sharp. It is the scripting language of choice in Unity, which is one of the biggest game engines out there right now. Lots of game studios consider C Sharp to be a necessity which makes it a very in-demand language in games. So if you can grasp it, then the game industry will open its doors to you. So what are the downsides? Honestly, probably just that it's hard to learn. Like I mentioned, once you factor in the .NET framework, as well as things like .NET Core, which I'm not going to talk about for now, it is vast, which can feel just overwhelming. There is a lot to know but also, um, I personally use C Sharp and the .NET framework at work, but I don't have all of it memorized. The reason I made a big deal about Microsoft's excellent documentation is because they've made it really easy to see if something you want to do already exists in the language. And honestly, usually it does. Truthfully, having the ability to know what you want your code to do and knowing how to look up the documentation for how to do it is arguably just as important as straight up knowing how to do it. Because if you don't know how to do the thing, then you'll need to know how to look it up. Honestly, being good at navigating documentation is actually a major programming skill. And eventually, once you've done it enough and you've seen enough parts of the code, you'll have it memorized. The only other downside to C Sharp is that while it's popular, it's rarely the most popular language in any given industry. In games, yes, but in webs, sometimes, but TypeScript is starting to take over these days. Desktop apps, also sometimes, but again, rarely the most popular. 
However, there is another similar language which tends to have more industry jobs these days, and that language is C-sharp's counterpart, Java. Java and C-sharp do truly have a lot of similarities, especially if you ever see them written side by side. Their syntax is very similar. They are both object-oriented, they are both strongly typed, etc. We've talked about these things. So the languages themselves look very close, nearly to the point of being identical. Why would you want to learn Java instead of C-sharp? Well, for one, frankly, it's easier to learn. It isn't as vast, it isn't as overwhelming and just have options staring down at you, and that can be a good thing. It's kind of more like our first two languages in that sense. If you need a tool, while it might not be built into Java, it's very possible that an external open source library exists for it that you can add to your project using Maven, and that's Java's equivalent of NuGet, PIP, or NPM. So when picking between Java and C-sharp, the biggest question you have to ask yourself is, what do you want to do with it? For Java, sure, it's a pretty solid language for developing web applications, but I would be quicker to recommend it if you're interested in building multi-platform applications. And by that, I mean you want to build one app and put it on multiple devices. So putting it on Windows, Mac, Linux, Android, iOS, etc. In fact, if you're interested specifically in Android development, then Java is pretty much a no-brainer. You should learn Java. It is the language of choice in the Android world. In fact, I might take it one step further and suggest that you also learn Kotlin. And it might sound like I'm suggesting an entirely new language here, but Kotlin is a superset or an extension of Java, just like TypeScript is an extension of JavaScript. And by the way, no, in case you're wondering, Java and JavaScript are not actually related. Anyways, um, Kotlin is an extension to Java, which is gaining massive popularity these days. It makes Java even easier to write and also makes it even more efficient. Developers in general are feeling really positively towards Kotlin, and the future is looking pretty bright for it. So that's a lot of praise, maybe even more than C-sharp in some ways. So what's Java's downside? Well, depending how you write it, Java can get complex really fast. Since it doesn't have all the built-in tools that C-sharp does with the .NET framework, you end up having to write a lot more lines in order to get the same functionality. On top of that, Java is a little bit more difficult to manage memory with. And again, I won't explain exactly what that means now since it'll take a long time, but it is a significant consideration for a lot of developers. There are other, more technical intricacies too, which could be considered a disadvantage when talking about Java, but they do get more technical than I'm comfortable with talking about on an overview. I'll summarize it by saying that I think Java is a really strong language and one you should probably be putting to the front of the line if you are considering Android development at all, and pretty close to the front of the line if you're interested in multi-platform development. All right, so we started by grouping Java and C-sharp together, split them apart, and now I'm pulling them back together once again to say that they are both really excellent options if you want to start with a language which is well-rounded, powerful, and just overall an excellent foundation for your coding journey. The biggest advantage with both of them is that they will instill good habits in your coding by being strongly typed languages, on top of the fact that they're both 
in demand languages for various industries. Again, web and game development for C Sharp, and then multi-platform and specifically Android development for Java and Kotlin. Now, we are down to one last language that I want to recommend as your potential first primary language. It is the lowest level one on the list, and if you use it as your foundation, it will undeniably be an enormous advantage to you moving forward. Out of all of our primary languages, it is the hardest to learn, and it has the steepest learning curve. But once you've conquered that curve, you will be able to learn almost any other language with an ease and facility like no other. This language is C, and I'm also going to be wrapping C++ up with it. Out of all of my recommendations, C is by far the oldest language, but despite its age, it is still incredibly relevant. I'd mentioned that if you were to learn C and C++, that you would be able to go and learn any other language really easily, and there's multiple reasons for this. Firstly, syntax. TypeScript took its syntax from C Sharp, and C Sharp got its syntax from Java, but ultimately, Java got its syntax from C and C++. It is the granddaddy of all of those other languages, so once you're familiar with C syntax, you will be able to pick up any and all of those other languages. And you'll also be able to get over their differences pretty instantaneously. Honestly, it's much easier to go from C to the other languages than if you want to try and go the other way around. Also, you'll be working at a really, really low level of code, so you will have to get intimately familiar with all of our foundational concepts. Once you're comfortable in C and C++, you will have a firm grasp over all of your primitives and data structures. You will definitely feel more comfortable working with algorithms, memory management, and honestly, just the underlying concept of how computers work. One thing that you do in C and C++ that you do not do in any of the other languages is working with things called pointers. And while pointers do technically exist in all of our other languages, they're abstracted away to the point where you don't even ever have to think about them. So in C and C++, by needing to think about them and understand them, you'll kind of be like Neo, seeing the code in the matrix. When you eventually move to other higher level languages, you will know exactly what is going on under the hood. And that means you can optimize your own code to take better advantage of it. By the way, you've probably noticed that I've been pairing C and C++ up this whole time. Why is that? Well, C++ is an extension of the original C, much like our Kotlin to Java relationship or TypeScript to JavaScript, you know. C++ has a few advantages over C, mainly in that it's a little bit easier to both read and write, especially because C++ adds one very important factor to C. They made it object-oriented. Original C is what we call procedural programming, whereas C++ is a hybrid of both procedural and object-oriented programming. Again, I would really love to dive into what both of these mean in more detail, but for now, let's just say that working in C++ makes things less complicated and easier for our human brains to understand. It's a little bit closer to reading our language than trying to read computer language. And, you know, it's kind of a trade-off for you. If you would like to go really low level and get those foundations to a high degree, 
go for C. If you want to stay low-ish level, but have a little bit of the creature comforts of the higher level languages, go for C++. Anyways, what kinds of programs can you write with C? Well, the everything. Like, everything and anything. I mean it. Anything you can think of. But um, if you ask me to give a primary use case for it in modern times, game development is a huge one again. While Unity uses C Sharp, the other biggest game engine, Unreal, uses C++. Also, if you're interested in writing programs focused on audio, there is a framework called Juice, J-U-C-E, which is extremely popular among audio programmers. You've also got access to Qt, Vulkan, MFC, and even .NET. It's just incredibly diverse, insanely powerful, and the code you compile with it will run the fastest out of anything we've talked about. And on top of that, the lessons you'll learn from learning it will carry you extremely far. The only disadvantage to learning C and C++ is that it's complex. And the libraries available to you are, well, there just aren't really many of them built in. You're going to either have to write your own tools or learn and leverage other libraries in order to do pretty much everything. Which, honestly, and maybe counterintuitively, is kind of an advantage more than a disadvantage. In learning how to do that, you'll have a fundamental understanding of how the higher level languages are doing the same thing. And in the future, if they ever can't do something that you want them to do, you could be the one to write new libraries in those languages, which is awesome. So to sum up C and C++, they can do anything. They easily serve as the best languages to learn in terms of giving yourself a strong foundation for learning anything else in programming, they're used all over the industry, and they are incredibly fast. The biggest trade-off that you have to make is that they are very hard to learn. They're complex. So if you want to learn it on your own, it's tough. I would recommend going through with a mentor, tutor, or maybe even joining a community because having a helping hand will make the process far smoother and way more fun. But hey, we made it. These have been our recommendations for first languages to start your coding journey. So let's recap it really quick. At the highest level, we had JavaScript, but really TypeScript, as well as Python, both being great options for web development, as well as a bit of application development. We also had C Sharp and Java and .NET and Kotlin as our more robust and diverse languages, which are great at web frameworks, as well as just awesome languages for making games, multi-platform applications, and far more. And lastly, C and C++ as our hardest hitting, but hardest to learn languages, just to give you the best foundation for being a programmer. Picking one of these languages to start might feel a bit daunting, but don't be too afraid. They're all good languages, and they all have just awesome communities full of folks who are more than willing to help you learn. If you do it via a bootcamp or a degree, then you'll have teachers and mentors to guide you along the way with any of these languages. And if you choose to learn in any of them on your own, there are fantastic resources out there to point you down the right path all the way from day one. The most important thing is that you start coding. Once you start, you've taken your first steps along your journey, and you'll already be further along than you were before. Also, if you're listening to this, 
you've already taken some steps. So high five to you. All right. So before we go, I'd like to spend just a little bit of time giving some attentions to languages I would recommend as second ones to learn. Now, obviously, if you pick one of the ones we just talked about, you could always go back for one of the others and have all of those advantages available to you too. For example, if you started with C and went back to Python. That's a very valid way to do it, and honestly, I would recommend it. But I'd at least like to mention some other languages which are cool and worth keeping an eye on. These will be much shallower dives than the one we just took, but hopefully deep enough to at least give you an idea of what's out there and put them on your radar. Firstly, a language which has been gaining a lot of popularity these days is one called Go. It was developed by Google and shares a lot in common with C. However, kind of like how nothing else reads exactly like Python, it's kind of the same thing with Go. But that's, it's more about the paradigms it uses and how you design your code than the language itself. Anyways, it's a really cool language, and one with just a ton of potential for writing amazing apps and tools. But it is also super complex and can be hard to translate those skills to other languages because it's so unique. Go is definitely worth keeping an eye on and very much recommended to explore once you have a comfortable foundation in coding. Next would be Swift. You might have noticed that when I was talking about developing for a bunch of platforms, I rarely mentioned iOS or the Apple ecosystem. A lot of our languages can write apps for iOS, but one of the best languages for doing it these days is Swift. It is replacing an old language called Objective-C for Apple, and it's just a nice welcome evolution of that language. However, it is only really used for iOS, which makes it really hard to recommend as a first language. When you're getting started, it's a good thing to experiment with different platforms and to have a language which can do lots of different things. Swift is a cool language, but it's very limited. So if you do end up being interested in developing iPhone or iPad apps, then definitely give Swift a look as your second. Now, our second to last language to talk about is Rust. It's a fairly new language, which takes a lot of influence directly from C++, but improves upon it in a lot of ways. C++ apps perform fast, but Rust ones are really, really fast. The language developers have also been doing just an amazing job in making Rust a language which takes all of the best parts from various other languages and fixing all the bad parts. The only problem with Rust right now, at least as of the time I'm recording this, is that it's a language which is still finding its footing. It's still in active development, and there's still lots of changes happening to it all the time. It's evolving quickly. It hasn't quite stabilized yet. But once it does, it could be an appealing new entry to the recommended first languages. But we're kind of just going to have to wait and see how it goes, and if it does have a solid future in store for it. At this point, we just don't know, but it definitely looks promising. And lastly, we have little old PHP. It is entirely a web-based language, and you've actually probably used sites which have PHP in it. It is the main language supporting WordPress, and WordPress sites make up roughly 40% of the internet. Seriously, 40%, that's a lot. <laughs> also, 
Wikipedia, Facebook, Tumblr, Flickr, and far more all use PHP as their backend. The problem with PHP is that it truly is only for the web, and you'll be using it for very specific purposes with a very specific tool set around it. On top of that, debugging in PHP is really tough. It also has a history of not being particularly secure, and in general, it's slower to develop web projects with it than it would be by using any of our other languages. So if you're interested in doing web development using tools like WordPress, then absolutely give PHP a shot. But I would definitely suggest not starting with it. And for what it's worth, I've personally spent a lot of time coding with PHP over the years, and I just really don't like it. I've tried. I, I just don't like it. <laughs> all right friends we have officially reached the end of coding fixes second episode i hope this has been helpful for you and if you have any questions comments concerns feedback be it positive or negative or just things and topics you want to hear about in the future please feel free to reach out to me anytime on twitter at fix podcasts f-y-x podcasts or by sending me an email to coding at fix.space. Hey, by the way, we have our own email address now. Nice. Um, for those who sent emails after our first episode, thank you so much. You definitely had an impact on what was talked about for episode two, and your messages were definitely appreciated. For episode three, I'm hoping that we can talk about the day-to-day -day life of being a professional software developer, the kinds of tools we use, some of the processes we go through, things like code reviews, how we plan what we're working on, and other things of that nature. But if there are other things you're interested in hearing about, please, again, send a message to at FixPodcast on Twitter or coding at fix.space. Thanks again for listening. It is super appreciated. I hope you have a great day.